Welcome to episode 191 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We have a lot happening on the podcast uh, this week. Uh, I, I just finished uh, an interview, uh, which is episode 190 with uh, uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Uh, so this will actually be the second podcast of the week and Best of all, it is our first podcast in front of a live and vibrant and standing ovation audience. Uh, let's hear it from the audience. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's great to uh, have you here. Uh, we also have uh, Ed Felton, who's the director of the Center for Information Technology Policy and the Robert Kahn Professor of Computer Science and Public Affairs at Princeton, and formerly the chief technologist at the FTC in the Obama administration. So welcome, Ed. Thanks. Okay, and Chris Krebs, who was at Microsoft, is now at DHS. And Chris, I have to tease you, you have by far the, the longest, best. the best, the, the, best. the longest yes. uh, title of anybody who has appeared on the podcast. You are the senior official performing the duties of the undersecretary for the National Protection and Programs Directorate, which I think means that you're the acting top cybersecurity official in the administration. Yes, that's about right. And I'm working on a piece of legislation to fix all those bad titles. So I assume the, the reason they didn't call you acting is because you've used up all the time you can be acting and you're just now the senior official doing the duties? Vacancies Act. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, I, that is a piece of uh, uh, inside baseball for uh, uh, for Washingtonians. Uh, uh, and, yes, the National Protection and Programs Directorate tells us absolutely nothing about the uh, institution that has an enormous budget to do cybersecurity for the civilian side of the federal government. Okay, and uh, you were waiting for it, I know. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, let's get started. Uh, we're here to talk about election security because it's election day. I voted today, and it was kind of cool. Uh, uh, I actually paid attention while I was voting, uh, and Filled in, you know, it felt very 19th century filling in the little bubble. Uh, and then it was suddenly 21st century where you take it to the scanner, it scans in and then drops into a safe with a big lock on it. Uh, um, so clearly some effort at cybersecurity, even if it's only cybersecurity theater, is going on. Um, all of this is driven in part by the episodes that we experienced in 2016 when uh, uh, the Russians hacked the DNC, uh, John Podesta's emails, uh, released the results of that to influence the campaign, uh, and intruded, according to DHS, on some uh, 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 voter registration systems. So it's raised the question, you know, are our election systems secure and could they be made secure? So I, what I thought I would do, if it's okay with you all, is just walk through the process of registering to vote, voting, having the votes tabulated and ask how bad is it? What can we do to fix it uh, about each of the stages? Is that okay? All right. So, Ed, let me start with you. Uh, voter registration. So we all register uh, as a central 
database of names and addresses, maybe some other identifying information, usually on a mainframe someplace is my guess. Uh, uh, This is what I I think um, uh, uh, Chris DHS said that at least two um, voter registration databases had been compromised by the... the I don't don't believe we said that. Okay. We said... uh, there, there may have been some systems that were compromised. There were others that were scanned. Scanned and, and not compromised, right? That's correct. And then some that had perhaps just had a drive-by. Okay. So the National Association of Secretaries of State said that at least two, there were intrusions into at least two systems. Uh, I think uh, Arizona and uh, another one. Uh, so they're, it's, they're obviously not perfect. But, Ed, uh, how secure are those systems? And if they aren't secure... Uh, are we screwed? Uh, well, so um, it varies. Um, these, like many things in American elections, these are run in a decentralized way. Each state has its own system for voter registration and for keeping track of the voter registration. And as you said, um, they would typically be uh, an old-style um, uh, database or mainframe-type system. Um, and so the task of securing those is really just – the task of securing a, uh, a security-critical database. Um, and how well that's done is going to vary from state to state. Um, there's no magic bullet for securing those systems. It's really about um, maintaining the best practices and being diligent about doing things in the right way. That said, um, what you really need from these systems is resilience, so that on Election Day, when the voters show up to cast their votes, that the poll workers can accurately tell who's supposed to be allowed to vote and who is not. Um, and as long as that's the case, then um, whatever happens to get to that point is uh, uh, we can deal with. So if you print them out and you know that they're good, you've checked them against your backups or you've kept them encrypted uh, so they can't easily be uh, tampered with, um, as long as you've got accurate data in the hands of the polling stations, then uh, it's hard for any intrusion to have serious impact. Sure. But of course, the assumption there is the key thing, right? Uh, How do you know that the state of the database that you say print out the uh, the checklist that uh, poll workers use, how do you know that that is uh, has the voters in it that it's supposed to have? Well, so it's this is about the security of backup, basically. Pretty much, right? It's about making sure that the records that you use to produce the election day check-in materials are consistent with the history of who registered and that you know that the changes that have been made to that system are the authorized changes. So how hard is that, Chris, Uh, 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 ensuring that uh, a database that is, you know, that you probably add 20 names to or 50 names to a day of this is not the, the most widely used or uh, um, instantaneous database in the world. Uh, is it possible to uh, ensure that uh, even if hackers compromise the mainframe that it's on, the, the, the integrity of that data can be ensured? It's certainly possible. I mean, it's just like anything else. Like you mentioned, IT systems, you know, it's, it's all about the integrity and uh, the integrity of the data. So it's Im- implementing a series of processes, best practices, guidelines. DHS works really closely with the Election Assistance Commission, which was created back in the 2000s under the Help America Vote Act. 
uh, work with a series of stakeholders from state uh, secretaries of state, senior election officials, localities, number of associations. We provide a range of services from you know just basic you know got, uh, uh, blocking and tackling type uh, consulting services all the way to full blown risk and vulnerability assessments. But providing them the tools, the resources to understand what it is they're trying to do on a day to day basis and helping them work through that process. And uh, you know I think Ed's kind of laid out the the bits and pieces of the systems that that we work with on a daily basis. But it's you know it's not just the things DHS are doing. Because it's it is a team sport. A lot of these state and locals have the resources. Some of those states and locals have the resources to uh, bring in private sector companies to help them work through these security processes and backups. But not all do. You know, it, there's definitely a resource deficit across the board. And if there is a compromise, it's not going to change the result of the election so much as the experience of trying to vote, isn't it? So that's kind of where we we ended up, I think. The, given the diversity of systems, the difficulty of really truly moving the needle on the vote count, it was the the psychosocial impacts of some of the things that happened last year. And uh, that's we're putting a lot of effort right now in just ensuring that we're providing the resources possible to ensure the public confidence around the, the voting system. So when you when you provide resources, I mean you. They, you we all know that uh, money has to be appropriated before right. it can be spent. So where does it, where do the resources come from for the, um, uh, the, the secretaries of state or the election commissions to improve their security, or how do you help them find the resources? Right. So it, good question. Uh, as I mentioned, team sport, uh, some states have resources already allocated and dedicated to managing these systems. Other cases that we're able to come in and provide some of those free government resources. And that's what the designation last year of election systems as critical infrastructure did. It allowed us to formally reprioritize our own efforts. Uh, we do have capabilities, uh, cyber assessment teams that go out that traditionally, prior to the designation really, had been focused on federal assets, those high-value assets mm-hmm. within the federal government, but also some of the private sector resources. So by designating critical infrastructure, uh, electric systems as critical infrastructure, we can then reprioritize, put them in some cases at the top of the heap, and then come out and help them. Now, that doesn't necessarily help get them to, okay, I need a new system. And that's where really kind of the rub is. Uh, right now, there there's not any sort of federal grant program similar to the state homeland security grant programs that you see FEMA manages, where you can go out and you can buy emergency responder resources. There's not an equivalent cybersecurity, whether it's just basic IT at a state level or election systems. I think you stuff. could get half the country to declare the, the 2016 election as a, a, a natural disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Um, so the next the next piece here is uh, how do we pivot off of where we are now into more secure positions? Great example is so the first off the DEFCON report. I think that was that's a, that's like a national treasure what they did. So this is DEFCON, and I'll ask Ed to uh, talk about this too. DEFCON set up what they called a voting village, and they put 25, 30 pieces of electoral uh, IT equipment uh, in the village and said, come on and hack it. And if I remember, everything got hacked or compromised in some fashion. Yes, that's right. Um, and this is was not really a surprise. There have been a lot of studies over the years of all kinds of different election day 
um, uh, voting IT systems, and every single one has turned out not only to be compromisable, but actually uh, generally to be not very well engineered for security, including very basic mistakes. Um, so, so, some of the stuff, and we can talk about, about the voting process, but uh, at least one machine was compromised in a matter of minutes over the air. Sure, right. Uh, and the attacker achieved complete control of the machine, could have changed the code, could yep. have changed the votes. That's so, right. So let me, let me give you an example of why that was such a valuable uh, and well-publicized report. The Commonwealth of Virginia immediately decertified systems based on that report. And the cascading effects, and here's where we get into the cost piece, the cascading effects are, as a result of the decertification, within the electoral boards across the Commonwealth of Virginia, you can't use that system. So then you have to go out and buy new systems. Okay, uh, they likely had not made those capital investments. So what do you do? I live in Alexandria. City of Alexandria went out and bought 500-some-odd-thousand dollars worth of equipment for today's election. There are over 1,300 electoral boards in the Commonwealth of Virginia. You do the math. I suck at math, but you can do it. You can figure out it's a lot of money. That's one state, 50 states, seven commonwealths, or seven territories and commonwealths. We're talking about a huge amount of money, and if we're just doing straight-line replacing pole-to-pole effectively, equipment-to-equipment, that's a ton of money. So we got to be thinking through some of the innovative solutions, and it's an acquisition. Ohio and Rhode Island have done some really uh, interesting um, kind of uh, economies of scale purchasing. state of Colorado is looking at some interesting ways of shared service modeling for electoral systems. So there's a, there, there's a full recognition of the problem across the country, and embrace, embracing it and recognize that, hey, we've got a lot of work to do, but if we do, if we work at it together, I think we can make some progress. It, it, let me, let me push on that. Okay. How, how hard is it? I filled in little bubbles. Yes, there was an optical scanner that, that counted it. I could have just dropped it into a ballot box and at the end of the day, they could have pulled it out and gone through it and said, yeah, that's one for the Republican, one for the Democrat, and added it up uh, without any fancy equipment at all. If they didn't have the money for fancy equipment, couldn't they just hire people who can count? Yeah, I, but I think what you really pointed at is the significance of a piece of paper right? and having that vote tallied there. Uh, the Election Assistance Commission, which certifies laboratories to go out and look at equipment, they haven't certified a, a non-paper-based system in over seven years. So the market and the technology, the vendor market, is trending into not just paper, but auditability. And it's that audit, that paper trail, the auditability that's most important. So, you know, going forward, it, it's always going to be about paper. And there, and there are a lot of countries that know this. Australia, they're all over it. They've got the paper thing down pat. So, uh, Ed, you agree? Paper's the solution? Absolutely. Paper, well, paper at least is part of the solution. The key is that there is a paper record that the voter has seen, which is retained by election officials. Right. So that way, if there's any doubt or dispute about what happened, you can open the box, dump the paper on the table, and count it, because right. we know that those are records that the voters saw. The fundamental problem with voting in a fully electronic way is that there's not a good way to know that what's recorded in the machine has any correspondence to what the voter actually did. And paper circumvents that just because of the paper is physical. And that mark that you put on the paper and you dropped in the box, everyone was watching the box, and we know how paper behaves. So what's interesting about this, I think, 
and, and I completely agree with you that, that this is the right way to do it and that it gives us a lot more confidence in the system. Um, this is the first time that we have digitized a process, thought about the cybersecurity issue of it, and said, you know, the hell with that. Uh, yes and no, I'd say, that the, what the trend is is not going back to a paper-only system, but the trend is toward a system that is hybrid, where you mark your paper ballot, and then you run it through a scanner, and there's an electronic scan, which is kept as one record of your vote, and then that paper ballot falls into, in your case, a safe or an old-school ballot box in some other cases, and that's kept as a redundant record. And the redundancy between the paper and electronic record, the ability to do a statistical audit post-election to verify the consistency of those records, um, and the fact that those redundant records have different face different threat models and different failure modes, that gives you uh, a, a system that's stronger than either paper or okay. electronic fair, would be allowed. Fair enough, because I, so uh, retaining the electronic, you worry, and right, as, as we see, is in beneficial. Third world countries will just steal the ballot box. Uh, that's right, uh, or tear up the ballots, things like that. Uh, Where, yeah, old-fashioned electoral fraud. Uh, yes, so you, you, you've got an electronic <laughs> record that makes it hard to pull that off. If you do the electronic record, if it's recorded in the correct way, which, by the way, most existing systems don't do. But you can keep an electronic record in such a way that tampering with it afterward would be detectable, right? And that gives you a big benefit. With an electronic record, you're worried about tampering in advance. And um, whereas with a paper record, you're worried about tampering after the fact, right? And using them together means that an adversary who wants to modify both in a consistent way to fool the system has to tamper more than once and in different ways. Um, and that gives you a stronger system than you could get with paper alone. So if you have to choose paper or electronic, choose paper. But if you can use both, then that's best. And that, you know, in my mind, that's just classic risk management, right? I mean, think about everybody racing to the cloud. Right. I think where you ultimately end up on the cloud is hybrid. A little bit on-prem, right. some air gap, mm-hmm. some in a private cloud, some in a public cloud. But it's all about understanding where your data is, how you're going to fail, fail gracefully, and make sure that you'll continue operations. Same mindset applies whether it's just normal IT operations or election. Now, in it a little bit might be at stake here, but I'd argue that Coca-Cola, when they think about the formula, they're managing that risk accordingly. But there's a gotcha here, right? And that is that I talked about, and we've agreed about having redundant records, but redundant records don't help you unless you actually compare them. Right, And so you need to do a post-election audit to compare the paper and the electronic records and make sure that they're consistent. Um, and that's you don't something have to do all of that. You, you, can, you, can, you can sample. Right. You do a statistical sample. The sample might be quite small in practice, so it doesn't have to be very costly. But you have to do it, and you need to do it in a way that is, um, that is statistically sound. And unfortunately, that is not a very widespread practice as of yet. Mostly people worry about they, they wait for a recount demand. Right, uh, yes. because if it's a if a it's a thirty point blowout, uh, nobody feels like going back. Nobody feels like right. Um, whereas you need to think of it like an audit, right? Like a financial audit, you do the audit even if you don't have any evidence in advance that anything went wrong. It's a routine practice that you do. It helps you. It helps to deter problems, and it helps you understand uh, how what the quality of your records um, are. Right. In the case of a financial audit, if your record keeping is sloppy, the audit will inform you of that. So the good news Same about deal here. audit is, you know, election day is a 
big resource drain for uh, the, the people who hold elections. And then they've got, you know, at least two years of sitting around with not that much to do. Uh, this is something they could do. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that the secretaries of state will be in touch with me uh, shortly. Uh, You'll be receiving emails, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but this is, this is a, a, a workload that you can stretch over time uh, because, especially if it's a 30-point blowout, Reporting back, we found anomalies tells you there's something wrong with your system, but it doesn't tell you that the election should be changed. So I'm going to jump in here and come to the defense of my key partners, the secretaries of state. Yes, Stuart. I know I know where you're going with this, but look, we're, we're we've got elections today, 2017 special elections, Utah, Virginia, uh, New Jersey. There's some more coming on in Alabama and elsewhere. Uh, Everything we're doing today is with an eye towards 2018. And these secretaries of state, this has been, uh, I think about the letters that we got in the DHS front office when I came in initially as a counselor to the secretary. I wasn't sure how this critical infrastructure designation was really going to break. We didn't have 100% kind of mind share. Over the course no, of the summer. a lot of grief over that. Hate mail. Yeah. Hate yeah. Mail. Not quite threatening letters, but hate mail. So we've come back, we've come into this position where we've built that trust. And that's when I think about some of the other questions we've gotten from the Hill on what took so long to make the notifications, what took so long to develop or establish the Government Coordinating Council. It takes, particularly in the cybersecurity world and also the Secretary of State world, it takes some time to build trust and relationships and develop that value proposition of here's what I can do for you. And we're there now. I mean, we, a, a little over, a little about a month ago, we established a Government Coordinating Council, which brings essentially brings all the state elected officials that touch touch the space of elections together we can tell them what we can do they can give us our, their kind of demand signal for requirements and what kind of help they need and and we're, we're moving forward and uh, all working with the election assistance commission there's a lot of work that's going to happen over the course of the next several months uh, in terms of updated guidance and best practices and, and principles this is what I think of as the standard DHS package. I, I, you, well, let's set up an ISAC, let's share information, we'll get you some uh, security clearances so you can get briefed on the threat. Uh, uh, Noun, verb, public-private partnership. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. Uh, and uh, um, the, the ferocious reaction, I think, when this first came along was partly because um, uh, the secretaries of state are mostly Republicans, and it was an Obama administration idea, and they, you know, were skeptical right from the start. Um, but also, they had no idea what DHS was likely to uh, be able to do for them, and now I think they have a feel for it. So, um, a, do you have the ISAC up and running, or something close to it? So we are working pretty closely with the multi-state ISAC, okay. uh, which is uh, already has every state and m many of the, the major counties and cities as stakeholders. So they just have a subcommittee of secretaries of state, essentially. Uh, that's kind of how it's working right now. And, and we're able to push a lot of information through that. We have some sensor capabilities, and uh, we're, we're really stepping up that effort. So I, you mentioned cloud. I wanted to go back to voter registration uh, uh, documents uh, or records. How expensive, really, in, a, in the an age of cloud, how expensive is it to maintain a database like this uh, uh, and to maintain it redundantly and relatively securely? 
I don't have my pricing sheet in front of me, <laughs> but uh, I look. I can. I think it can be done. I think if you look at again what Rhode Island and Ohio, and then even look out at Colorado, what they're working on with the shared service model. I think you've got to think through some scalable solutions that are also inherently securable yeah. and redundant. Mm-hmm. And that's you know th- those are always it's Ed mentioned earlier the threat models. Um, it can be done. It's going to cost a little bit more from a security perspective, but as a federal government, we need to think about what we can do to help kind of bolster those efforts. So I, I, I'm feeling surprisingly good about the ability to secure the basic vote, uh, to make sure that voting registration uh, records aren't so screwed up that we can't hold the election uh, and that we can catch people if they try to screw them up. Uh, and that the vote can be secured, again, assuming good faith on the part of people observing it, uh, uh, in a way that makes it highly unlikely anybody's going to tilt an election by hacking machines. So um, maybe you're too optimistic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so here are the reasons why we have a lot of unfinished business here. One is that the things that you said we can do and know how to do are not always the things that we do, right? right? Um, that um, there's a lot of things that we need to get right and get right consistently in order to secure voter registration databases. There's some upgrading. There's some uh, places where states need to make sure they have the right personnel in place and they're taking maximum, um, getting maximum use from all the help they can get from DHS and others. In terms of election day equipment, we talked about what a good or ideal system would be like, um, but there's there is a, um, a d- disappointingly high fraction of U.S. voters, including uh, in my own state of New Jersey, that use systems that are all electronic and that are not where they need to be from a security standpoint. New Jersey is, you know, I looked at a, at a map. New Jersey is like far and away one of the worst states. It's all, all electronic. There's not a lot of paper records, even of what the electronic magic boxes produce. Uh, it's almost like New Jersey politicians thought that maybe a little fraud wouldn't hurt. I wouldn't go that that far. Um, that's that, aggressive. That was, that was aggressive, <laughs> yes. Um, uh, I think in New Jersey, the real issue is just money, yeah. that it would cost 40 to $50 million to replace all of these systems, and that the state, um, when it... In the unlikely event it found 40 to 50 million dollars, would probably find something considered higher priority to spend it on. Um, and, and that's the real issue. The other area in which we're not at the ideal point is with respect to these post-election audits, uh, which in some states don't happen at all, and in other states are done in a way that is um, is outdated and not doesn't give the desired. Level of statistical. So let conflicts. me push you on that. Yes. You know, I, it, yeah, it would be nice I, if you're if you're interested in security. This is an additional security protection. But is it essential that everybody do that? that I it, think it is, and here's the reason. The reason is at the end of the day, we point to the paper record, right? Right, as being the basis for confidence that there is a correspondence between what the voter did and what ends up in the count. Right. And so if we don't do an audit, then what we've done is ignored those paper records 
and just done an electronic tally. And the question is, why do we have paper records at all if we're not going to audit them? Well, so, uh, let me uh, offer the, uh, the idea that if it really matters, we can always go back to the paper. But why should we check a 10-point uh, victory uh, when it's highly unlikely that uh, tinkering with the paper would have produced that? This is Well, this is how we know that it is highly unlikely. This is how we know that we okay. don't need to, right? So you look at a very small statistical sample, and a 10 point, it, with a 10-point margin, you could probably look at order of 50 ballots and get high statistical confidence from recounting just those. Um, and so it doesn't need to be expensive if the election is not close. Okay, so, so really what you're saying is this would be best practice, it would be, not a bad, uh, it wouldn't be expensive for the secretaries of state to organize this. Uh, they just bring the poll workers back one extra day and... You can do it right in the polling place at the end of election day. Yes, okay. Um, that, you know, the, there's lots of different ways to do it, but because relatively few ballots need to be counted, um, you would ask a few of the poll workers to stay a little bit longer at the polling place and uh, either select one ballot at random and hand count that, or else... Um, uh, just a few polling places in the state to hand count everything. So let me. It doesn't need to be expensive if you do it um, careful. So I, I am struck by the fact that, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, as as you expect, I'm I'm going to make uh, politically incorrect statements and already have. And here's a here's one more. Uh, every time a party in the last 15 years has lost the White House, they're shocked. They're astonished. It must have been fraud. Um, a, and we get legislation based on the assumption that the electoral system failed. So hanging chads, it's outrageous, it's just astonishing, it's the hanging chads that cost the uh, Al Gore the election. Let's make sure we never have another uh, a hanging chad. So we pa- pass the Help America Vote Act, and we give states all this money to go out and buy magic boxes that will never show us a hanging chad. In fact, they'll never be auditable. Uh, we'll just have to accept that the machine uh, worked med- automatically. Uh, and that is the problem we have today, at least in New Jersey and a few other places. Uh, uh, so 2004, um, President is re-elected. President Bush is re-elected. Everybody says, oh, it must have been diebold. I uh, hope, you know, fixing the election. And everybody starts looking at voting machines. Uh, but nobody passes legislation because the uh, White House didn't change hands. But when it changes hands in 2008, the Republicans say, I think there was voter suppression of military voters. They couldn't get their ballots in. The secretaries of state weren't giving them time to get stuff in. We pass another uh, uh, law. Save, I think, the Save Act, uh, if I remember this right, uh, uh, saying that military has to have special treatment from the secretaries of state, uh, and the military starts coming up with absentee ballot systems, and the secretaries of state say, oh, look, we'll give you a PDF, you just fill it out and email it to us, it's so easy, or go to this allegedly secure website and drop off your ballot, it'll be no problem at all. I, this strikes me as equally dumb to, to the magic box solution that we came up with in 2002. Um, is there any way we can collect absentee ballots on the Internet so, or over the Internet or via email and, and have confidence in their security? I'll, I'll, I'll start with Ed because uh, that will give Chris chan- a chance to come up with a politically appropriate answer. 
Sure. Oh, well, okay. Um, well, so I have a longer response to the first part of the rant, uh, which maybe I'll save. Um, uh, with respect to the uh, absentee ballots, um, this is difficult, uh, collecting the ballots via the Internet. You're inherently making a decision. Um, that you're going to accept some increased risk that something will, some funny business will happen on the internet as the ballots are coming in. Now, it may be that for a, a military person who's deployed in a difficult setting overseas, that that is the only way to get them access to the ballot box, and we may decide as a policy matter that that's what we want to do. Um, I'm certainly sympathetic to the, um, uh, to the difficulty that uh, overseas deployed military people have in voting. But the idea that we would make that available to everyone, as a matter of course, um, I think is much more problematic. Um, that we need to um, that we need to be uh, we need to stay away from collecting ballots over the internet to the extent we can. Distributing blank ballots to be filled out and submitted by other means is a different story. And less problematic, right? Yes, that's right. I'm distributing blank ballots. Um, I'm, I am more comfortable with, but submission it means of ballots. You have ballots. to do a better job of ensuring that the people who send you the ballots actually are entitled to vote. There is that issue, and absentee ballots are potentially a security issue all in themselves. Um, and again, that is a decision that has been made to allow people to vote by mail. Um, so, in my view, um, how to secure mail-in voting is actually a really interesting research challenge that we're only starting to think about. But right now, um, uh, if uh, uh, if an evil version of me decided to try to manipulate an election, um, probably absentee ballots would be a place to start. So um, is, there, is there a solution? Well, I would have thought that the first response would be, let's see if we can't make the U.S. Postal Service and the military mail system work rather than uh, subject all this to um, handling over the Internet. Uh, is that the solution, or is, am I being too simple? Without going too much in detail into the SAVE Act and some of the, the overseas voting, I, I think what we're really getting to is a fundamental challenge with identity management and authentication. Mm-hmm. How do you tie that? If you don't have the multiple factors to authenticate right in front of you, that's the biggest challenge for expanding it beyond save and expanding it beyond overseas voting. And in mail-in voting, in the state of Washington has a certain uh, system in place that I think it's an interesting opportunity that could be studied. But again, you know, we have fundamental challenges just with identity management and authentication. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, Ed, I, I'm gathering that you think maybe we've gone too fast to even mail-in ballots uh, uh, for places like, I guess, Colorado, Oregon, Washington. I, I do worry about the security of mail-in ballots. That said, I'm here today on Election Day outside my home jurisdiction, and I did mail in my ballot, so I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I actually sent my wife a note. Uh, she's a... Uh, very strong liberal Democrat. I said, don't worry, honey. She's in Rhode Island. I said, don't worry. I voted for you. <laughs> I, uh, or you can vote tomorrow. Exactly, exactly. And she uh, she sent back a note saying, uh, oh, I voted absentee, so your ballot's already been canceled. Uh, and uh, I, obviously, 
doing that is something that's pretty important, especially as we move around. But uh, uh, the uh, it, it's still uncertain when 20 or 30 percent or 100 percent of your ballots come in by mail whether we have all the security we need. And it and it's fundamentally difficult to do that without the person being present. Right now, for uh, identity proofing, we rely actually to a substantial extent on the fact that the person has to present themselves in their neighborhood, right? I live in a small town. When I go to the polling place in person, there's always somebody there who knows me. So that if you were to walk in and say, I'm Ed Felton, I'm here to vote, someone would find you out almost uh, almost certainly. So I'm, I'm more skeptical about that because I don't think you can count on that. The real reason you want them to show up is because they are entering a place where they can be arrested. They can be identified. Yes. They are they are investing their corpus in the fraud, uh, and it's a whole lot easier just to drop something in their mail uh, than to show up and run the risk of being. I want to pu- I want to pull on that for a second though, because what you've identified is the the significance of physical presence and access to a machine. So you think back to the DEFCON report, and there are a number of those machines that require physical access to get to the USB ports or manipulate. So it's it's an interesting thing, the investment of physical into the fraud activities. is It's a big deal. It's a big hurdle to overcome. I, I agree with you. I, I think the, the idea that people are going to be sitting there plugging USB yeah. keys into their uh, uh, auto, you know, their magic boxes in New Jersey, at least, uh, I, it strikes me as implausible because you don't know you can get away with that. And to assume it scales beyond that one precinct. Right. Yeah. Uh, Okay, well, so I, you know, this is not a national security crisis. It's 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 not Kim Jong Un. Uh, we can solve this problem. I I think, uh, um, and I guess that that comes back to the question. There's legislation being proposed to to say DHS ought to tell each state where it's biggest vulnerabilities are and suggest ways to uh, come up with a plan to, to, to address those, and then the EAC can write checks for that. Now, you've got to find the money, uh, uh, but the kind of uh, estimates I'm seeing, $1 billion, $2 billion, uh, um, at a time when we've set aside $150 billion for a, a, a tax cut um, one or two billion dollars, it'd be hard to find, but it's not impossible to find. Um, Ed, I'll let, because you, you are constrained by uh, uh, what the current policy of the administration is on spending that money, but uh, Ed, I, I'll let you comment on whether a billion dollars would fix this. I think a billion dollars would go a long way. Um, and there's a few, I mean, there's a few things that we need to do. One is in some states, some counties, we need to upgrade systems so that we have uh, polling place systems and we have voter registration systems that are modern and do the things that we've talked about already. Um, and then we need to make sure that we have the resources available to do the due diligence, to monitor the threats, and make sure that the people running those systems are know how have the information they need to prepare them. And if it costs a billion dollars or two billion dollars, um, that's a good deal when you compare it to uh, what the, the worst case would be. So um, I'll let you return to my earlier rant. Um, I, 
every time we've tried to do this, after the White House has changed hands, we've managed to screw things up. Uh, the White House has changed hands again. What do you know? Uh, the losers are sure that it's a flaw in the electoral system. Um, how are we going to avoid screwing it up again? So here's the, here's, I think, the reason we're in this cycle. And that is that, um, we aren't yet in a position where the election processes do what they need to do. What they need to do is not only tell us who the winner is, but also produce convincing evidence that that person really is the winner, right? And if we have systems that are more robust, if they, if they have, let's say, a proper paper trail, proper audits, and all of those things, then we can have higher confidence that if our favorite candidate didn't win, it's because the voters weren't smart enough to support them and not because someone stole the election. Somehow I, I'm, I'm envisioning, you know, the, the, perhaps it's the academic uh, uh, flavor of that, that we're st- going to start getting uh, election announcements that say uh, uh, the winner is uh, the Democrat with a 98.4% confidence level. I, I'm not sure that, that the Republicans would be satisfied with that. Well, I think you'd... There's different ways to have the conversation, right? Um, but at the end of the day, you do want to produce stronger evidence. If there are um, voting machines in some swing state that are known to be vulnerable, and it's known that it would not have been possible to detect tampering with those after the fact, then you're left with the lingering question. And the way to deal with that is to move toward a system where there actually is evidence, where you actually can check. Um and that's how I think we break that cycle. So rather than just changing policy in response to uh, the post-election alarm, we could try improving policy. Okay. Yeah. You know, I'm a Republican. Call me naive. I'd, I'd be happy to say we just won't count New Jersey's votes until they shape up. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, Chris, you would, it, it, it can at least tell us, could DHS do the things that are being talked about, uh, put aside finding the money, but could DHS sit down with each uh, of the uh, 56 election systems uh, and analyze what they needed to do to achieve reasonable levels of security? So, I mean, the answer is, of course, given time, money, distance problems aside, uh, and we are doing those things right now. We've got this range of options between actual advisory services, cyber hygiene, which is just a remote scanning capability, that risk and assessment. And there's a range of capabilities in between, including self-assessment capabilities. But you got to keep in mind, as I mentioned earlier, some states, some jurisdictions are competent enough to do this on their own. And they don't necessarily need DHS, where there is a backstop. There are others that just can't get there. And also... Mention it again. I mentioned it earlier. This is not just about election systems. This is a broader IT challenge, not just at the state and local level, but God knows at the federal level. So there's a lot of work ahead of us. We're on kind of the button for a lot of this work, and uh, you know it's the challenge ahead of us. Well, this is you know this is always DHS's story. Every time they get halfway good at something. Their, um, uh, the, their set of responsibilities is vastly expanded and their opportunities to fail are vastly <laughs> expanded. Uh, and I say that with great affection and as having, Experience. having, uh, failed many times in many of uh, <laughs> uh, the responsibilities I was assigned. I was there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> there no, <you> go. <laughs> 
Oh, I'm sure everybody's got a story on that. Um, why don't we ask if there's some, if there are questions in the audience, we can at least take a couple. I'm going to jump in here for a second uh, because our uh, mic for the question from the floor malfunctioned. Uh, essentially, uh, the question was, yes, you can have a backup for voter registration data, but if the data is corrupted, isn't there a real risk of serious delays and other problems at the polls that could have a big impact on the perception that the uh, uh, voting has been handled properly. Chaos at the polls is really the, yeah. the issue. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Uh, well, I think this gets to one of the one of the core challenges here, which is the um, the distinction between an attack that tries to modify the election result versus an attack that just tries to undermine the legitimacy of the election. Right, and I think one of the lessons from the 2016 cycle is that we should have been more afraid of legitimacy undermining attacks as opposed to um, result the the kind that modified the result, uh, because uh, uh, claims uh, either modifications to um, uh, to voter registration databases, the chaos at the polls scenario, or just credible claims to have modified. Uh, certain kinds of records or machines um, uh, can have an effect on legitimacy, and those are more difficult to prevent. So, if you're if if we're in a world where it's all paper, why doesn't um, provisional voting, provisional ballots, solve three quarters of the problem? You say, okay, you don't want to wait. You you, you have to uh, you know take the kids back to uh, back home. Uh, Here's a provisional ballot. Fill it out. Stick it in. Put your name on the outside uh, and seal it up. Uh, and if you should have been able to vote, uh, we'll have your vote. And we'll stick it in the uh, in the machine. Does that solve the problem or come close? Uh, at small scale, I think that works. If you have a large number of people who vote provisionally, then it becomes very difficult to process. Requires a lot of adjudication. Takes a long time. Um, and anything that takes a long time and involves a lot of adjudication, there's more, more things that can go wrong, more space for dispute. Um, actually, one of the security, one of the useful security properties of some systems is that they can give you a result relatively quickly. And that reduces the, the time window of vulnerability in which an attacker can act against you. So, uh, Chris, just to wrap up, 2018, as you pointed out, Coming, coming fast. We can't, you know, ask for an extension. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of people who would uh, come out of their chairs at that idea. Um, So um, how well do you think we'll be prepared by 2018 to deal with cybersecurity threats uh, now that half the world, or at least half the, the, the half of the world that hates us, has figured out that this is a good way to uh, mess with us. So, can't put a number on it, but certainly more prepared than we were last year, more prepared than we are today. This is something that at least the Department of Homeland Security and working with a number of interagency partners, the FBI, the intelligence community, we're bringing together as many assets as we possibly can. I am reprioritizing uh, capabilities, resources, people on a daily basis. Uh, we are doing everything we can, and, and I do get the sense, I mentioned it, Earlier, six months ago, we weren't all on the same page. We're all on the same page right now. We're all pulling the same direction. And uh, there, there's a lot of work to be done between now and, and really, frankly, for me, it's next summer. we gotta get we got to get where we need to be by next summer. 
And if you successfully get through 2018 without any security glitches in the electoral system, um, are you expecting any congratulatory calls? I, I, From you? I, no, 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 I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm look, happy to tell I, you. I, I, look, I'm not doing this for the congratulatory <laughs> calls. We're not doing. We're doing this, this because is, it's this the most is, important issue facing, I think, our country. This is right DHS's now. problem. Right? Um, when they're successful, if it comes with a notices. check. Yes. Yes. Okay. From the treasury. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. There's more. There's more. Yes. I add. uh, What's your assessment of where we're going to be in 2018? I do think we'll be better off than we were in 2016. Um, I hope we are as far as we need to be. But we're actually in an unusual position right now, and that is that we might actually have broken out of the trap we've been in for a long time. And the trap is immediately before an election. Everyone is spun up about these issues, but it's too late to do anything. Right. And after the election, we've moved on and thought about something else. Right. So here we are. There's not a major election now, and yet people are still paying serious attention to this issue. And that's what it's going to take to improve our posture. All right. I can I can validate that. Yeah. The con- uh, Congress, they care. Yeah. I, I, so, Ed, you're glad to be out of government now that uh, uh, this is uh, happening? Or would, do you wish you could go back in and help fix it? Both. I am happy to have done it. Um, I'll be unable to resist doing it again, probably. Okay. I I, I have overcome that, Ed. Chris, I won't ask uh, what you'd rather be doing now. Uh, I'm sure this is the thing you most love, uh, and it is uh, the most important thing you'll do in in your life, quite possibly. So I tell myself every morning. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Uh, Please join me in thanking these great participants. Okay, thanks to Ed Felton, Chris Krebs, and all of the audience with their questions, your enthusiasm, your standing ovations over and over again. Uh, This has been Episode 191 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Be sure to uh, send us suggestions for uh, speakers. Uh, You can't see it, but each of our uh, speakers has in front of them the highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, they're going to take them home as soon as they finish drinking what's in them. Uh, and uh, if you send us uh, someone's name and they agree to appear, we will send you a Cyber Law Podcast mug. So get those suggestions in and join us every week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.